Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today is episode 83, and we're going to be interviewing Courtney F. How are you doing this afternoon, Courtney? Oh, I'm doing awesome. How about you? I'm doing well, doing well. I'm excited to do this. So let's just hop into this and dive in and let's get the party started. Tell me about growing up in your childhood. So with my childhood, I actually had a a pretty good good childhood. I grew up in a small town in in Utah County, you know, where everybody kind of knows everybody. Um, Went to the same school for a long time. Um, You said Utah. You said Utah County. Are you in Utah? Yeah, Utah, Utah County. Yeah. Okay. Little small, small county just south of Salt Lake. So out of the big stuff. And yeah. So I have uh, three siblings. I have an older brother, a little brother and a little sister. Um, We're we're all pretty close in age. Me and my older brother are only like 15 months apart. And that was back when they were telling moms that they couldn't get pregnant while they were breastfeeding. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) So we're only about 15 months apart. So we, we were only one or two grades apart in school. So I was like kind of riding in tow with him. Um, And a lot of his friends became my friends, which did bug him a little bit, but you know, it is what it is when you're that close in age. And then my little brother and me are three years apart. And then my sister's three years back from him. So we're six apart from them we we have a really close family we're still really close we, we talk all the time my my mom is in in california my sister's in idaho but we all still get together a lot um i did 4-h as a kid um i played sophomore in high school i was best friends with my dad we were really close we'd go hunting all the time and and all that kind of stuff and you know, pretty smooth sailing for the most part, right up until, what was it, like my junior year in high school, I started getting in a little bit of trouble. Um, we had moved um, from one city to another, and my high school was allowing me to still go to that high school, even though I was out of the their zone or whatever, just because I was just finishing up my high school. And then I decided to get in trouble. We vandalized like the baseball dugouts and broke a bunch of crap and lost a bunch of data. I went to three different high schools and got kicked out of each one of those for causing issues or just plain not showing up. Um, there was a, a boy that I was in love with uh, that he, I'd, I'd get dropped off at school by my parents and he would come and pick me up and take me to his house and then he would go to work and I'd hang out there all day until he got home from work and then we'd hang out and he'd take me home at night and we, we ended up actually getting married and he's the father of, of my child. Um, but I mean, I guess that's Pretty well with my child. Well, my family also, we were, you know, Utah has that uh, stigmatism of Mormonism, right? So we were, you know, pretty into the church for about time I was maybe six or seven. You know, I was baptized and all that stuff. And up, up until maybe when I was 
about the time my, my trouble started, we started moving around and stuff when we didn't weren't so into the church. And now my family is completely different than what they were before. My my mom drinks and smokes pot and my dad plays tons and tons of poker. They were living in Vegas a little while ago, so they were living it up down there. You know, my whole family drinks and, you know, it, it still throws me off when my mom will drop the F-bomb. And I have to take a second to remember that's who she is now. Yeah. <laughs> and my, so my dad used, will swear sometimes too. So they used to be Mormon is what you said. Oh yeah. Yeah. We were and, really Mormon. My dad held an office in the church and my mom wow. did young women's and all that. So yeah. I was going to ask how, how long, do you remember how long your parents were Mormons? Was it like a long-term thing or was it like, you know, maybe it just started around the time you were remembering? Um. So no, I just remember I was little and my my mom was having some some big like dramatic issue and feeling really depressed and whatever and had prayed you know for a sign or whatever and then the more the missionaries came and knocked on the door right that moment so she took that as a sign from God whatever so I was little and you know like I said I was baptized and everything I went through young women's camp so up until when I was a teenager so we were probably in the church for a good 12 12 years or so Okay, so pretty long term. Yeah, yeah, we have nothing to do with it anymore. <laughs> we all joke about the the floating astronaut in the sky that everybody prays to, and whatever. And you know, if if people here are LDS, I'm in no way harshing your belief system or your your religion at all. It's just how my family does does stuff now. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different. Yeah. Did you think you did you learn anything from doing the Mormonism thing? Any, any lessons you took away from it? Well, I mean, with the LDS, it's the same, you know, pretty much as any other religion. You know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill. Treat other people how you'd like to be treated. Have that honor system and integrity, which, I mean, I still definitely believe in doing that as a person, you know. But a lot of the other things with the the literature that they read and stuff like that, it's really not telling in my opinion, it's really not telling the things that people are taking it as because it's it's all stories and, you know, metaphors. And so you just kind of take out of it what you take out of it and people tell you this is what it is, you know. And so so for me with with the church, it was when they um, they really started cracking down on on gay marriage and, and people who are um, uh, homosexual in the church and started like excommunicating people. I don't know if you remember that because you're not here in Utah, but it was a, a big thing when they legalized gay marriage and the church really cracked down on its gay members. And they really? basically said, you know, you can be gay, you know, you can have those feelings as long as you don't act on them. So, you know, as long as you're miserable your whole life and not being the person that you really are, then you yeah, can still be a part of our church. Really, it doesn't sound like too yeah. much fun. Yeah, yeah. So they, they've lightened up on that now uh, because it was you were just excommunicated. Children of gay parents were not allowed to be baptized um, or anything like that. And I actually I was hadn't been a part of the church for a while when this had started. And I was like, I wonder what would happen. I, I made an appointment with the bishop in my area. I had never met the guy, never been to church there or anything. But I made an appointment with him and I, I went in and I told him, you know, I'm gay. And he's like, well, do you, you know, do you act on that? Do you have any desire to stop acting on it? I was like, no, I'm going to go and kiss my girlfriend as soon as we're, we're done with this. You know, I was, I was very, very arrogant about it. And, uh, you know, just kind of mostly trying to, to prove a point more or less. And so he was like, okay, well, yeah, I got to excommunicate you. And he sent a letter to, 
the the temple to excommunicate my membership and I've had my records removed from the church since then, but what they've changed now is, I mean, you still can't be a member of the church if you're acting on your gay intentions, but children of gay people can be baptized, but in order to do that, they have to basically um, disown their parents, say, yeah, you're, you're not my true parents, you know, and then they can be baptized. I had to deal with that with my daughter when she turned eight because all of her friends were getting baptized and stuff. And I had to kind of try to explain that to her without like making a decision for her. You know, it was kind of a, a sensitive topic with my daughter, just trying not to like be the parent that goes, no, that's wrong. You know, you're being stupid. No, you're not doing it. You know, just trying to give her information to make her own decision. It was, it was kind of a sensitive, you know, conversation with her. It sounds very much like a, I, I heard about Scientology, watched a few documentaries where that's the same thing where they excommunicate you. And once they do, if you're, if the family and friends want to stay in the church or whatever you want to call it, the organization, they can't talk to you anymore. They have to cut yeah. you off. Yeah. You have they to, be, you have to shun them or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're not allowed to be spoken to ever again. If you want to remain in. And a lot of people, they grew up there. It's all they know. So they don't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. So they, they go, they go with, they just go with the flow. Yeah. It's yeah, thing it's I very read. interesting. I'm all for religion, all for religion, different ones. I read about all different ones. I don't, I'm agnostic, which means I'm in the middle. I don't know. But mm, me too. like you said, all religions say the same thing, kind of. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't have adultery, don't kill someone, et cetera. Ten commandments, ten this, eight that, whatever it is. Every religion has some stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, um. Yeah, sometimes it, people could take it and do the wrong things with it. Yeah, yeah, and like you, you, I'm agnostic, and I just believe, you know, if by chance there is some higher almighty that's going to decide whether I go to heaven or hell or purgatory or whatever the heck the case may be, as long as I am a good person in myself and I don't treat people like crap, and I'm just, I feel like if, whether I believe in that or not, whatever, I should be in a pretty good space as long as I am not a yeah. crappy person, you know, so I'm, I'm willing to roll the dice on that. That's what I'm trying to do, just roll the dice, who knows, that's what we got, just live your life for every day. Yep, exactly. So when was the first time you ever used anything? Uh, so that would probably be about like my junior year in high school when I started getting in trouble, I started, started drinking and, and stuff like that, partying with friends and, um, smoking pot, you know, nothing, nothing super, you know, nothing beyond alcohol or marijuana, basically. And that was, you know, partying in high school. And, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people that do that, that end up not being an addict growing up, you know, but after I I got married when I was 18, um, to that, that guy in high school that I told you that was picking me up from school and whatever, we got married and then I got pregnant. So I didn't drink or anything. I think there was one time I had like two beers and he got all pissed off at me because I was pregnant. I'm like, yeah, fair. So I I didn't drink or smoke pot or anything like that while I was pregnant. And then I I had her in the end of 2009. So just before I turned 19. So really young mom, you know, which adds more ammo to the stigmatism of of Utah and and young moms and and all that stuff. But, um, you know, after she was born, I did... Um, I was really went, into, real quick, real quick. That's a stigma. Young moms, I guess. Is it because the Mormons were with younger gals? 
Well, it's a lot of, we make a joke here. Um, like if anything happens super fast or faster than expected, we call that a BYU engagement. So that's the Brigham Young University, the big college here. Um, so we call it, it's a BYU engagement because it happens super quick. They're usually really young. And, you know, it's just kind of like, have as many babies as you can <laughs> kind of a yeah. thing. Yeah, it's not necessarily said anywhere in their literature to do that, but it's just kind of what happens. You know, they fall in love and then they get married, get married and sealed in the temple. And then uh, a lot of the time, well, I can't say a lot of the time, just from my experience from people that I've known that got married really young and especially sealed in the temple, they end up, you know, when you're young, you don't know who the heck you are. You change a lot with your experience after you get into the real world, you know, working and, you know, buying a house and learning who you are. And a lot of the time, like, again, I can't say a lot of the time, but they kind of grow apart as different people. But then they have this higher obligation of I'm sealed into the temple with this person. They end up miserable, you know, because they, they be getting divorced, especially after you've been sealed in the temple. Is, I don't, I think it's more difficult to do, especially because you have to do it through the church. Um, but it, there's so many stigmas here in Utah. We're the number one LDS um, state. We're the number one gay state also. Really? We're also I the number one that. state for methamphetamine use. <laughs> so there's all sorts of, of contradictions. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of contradictions here. That's a shame. Um, so you used junior year. It was just beer and alcohol, beer and uh, marijuana, stuff like that. Yeah, just beer and marijuana. Other stuff started later. Um, like I was saying, after I had my daughter, um, I don't know if the kind of the same thing happened where you are. I know it happened in several places throughout the country, but they had this thing come out called Spice. Called what? Which they could sell Spice. Spice. Oh, it was like um, something to smoke. Yeah, it was like Damiana leaf sprayed with like this chemical stuff that they could actually sell in the smoke shops. And they, they tried for a really long time to make it illegal, but what they'd do is they'd make the specific um, chemical compounds illegal, and then they would just take one compound out and add another, and then all of a sudden it was legal for them to sell again. It is straight up illegal for them to sell now. They, they've made it so that you can't sell it now. But um, people can still get it. But Spice was uh, very interesting because people would make it at home basically so it wasn't regulated at all like how much chemical was on this bowl that you were smoking so one time we me and my friend we had just had a pipe we took like two hits a piece and i almost had a heart attack and she had a seizure oh, shit. Um, because of what we had smoked and yeah i was basically paralyzed my heart was beating out of my chest i couldn't move for like an hour we were all freaking out but and we only had smoked just a little teeny tiny bit because yeah. somebody had made it in their basement and sprayed too much stuff on it, and we just got the mother load of it. But it was it was similar-ish to marijuana, like the high that you'd get from it. Mine was totally different. I think it's what I smoked with spice, but what happened was I out of nowhere, it just like transported me to the past and I was back on my grandmother's block. I felt like I was there. Like I've never had a feeling like that, like a hallucinate a hallucin hallucination that strong you know yeah. what I mean yeah and it, it might have been different because like I said they would just change up the chemicals so that they could continue to sell it in stores oh, I remember so I, every, I every mixture like, you get 
yeah, so it's just like every mixture that you'd get would be different. And then there was also the the bath salts. I never did the bath salts, but the bath yeah. salts was like the the knockoff of basically meth is was my understanding of it. But I, there was like that guy that tried salt. to eat the guy's face and whatever. Yeah, have, yeah. How do you take? I have no salt? idea. I have no idea. I think they either smoke it or I, I think maybe snort it. I I really honestly have no idea. Huh. Well, it's a good thing that we're both addicts and we have no idea how that works. Right. Yeah, I'm fine being ignorant in that. In that yeah, aspect, there's certain so. things I would never try. And thank God, I mean, don't never say never. There's certain things that for some reason I, I, I'm, I was very adverse to like heroin or crack or anything like that. But to me, I could take pills all day. That was okay. <laughs> Which obviously yeah. it wasn't. I'd be popping Adderall and Klonopin and I loved painkillers. Um, so... You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 My, my harder stuff ha- happened later because, again, after I had my daughter, when I started using the spice, mind you, I was still only 19, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. I was still really young. And, uh, you know, some stuff had happened in, in my marriage. There was some sexual assault that had happened between my, my husband and I. And it, it was weird. That was another part of kind of the, the Mormon mindset of that he was my husband and that. I should do what he wants me to do kind of a thing. And and I, I tried to convince myself that it was okay. And it was not. And that's actually why we ended up getting divorced um, is because of that. And that, that after we had gotten divorced was kind of when I, I plunged down to the deep end after that, that sexual assault and, and everything. I had went moved in with a friend. I only so had her. He basically, he, he attacked you, tried to do something without your permission. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then actually what ended up cutting it off was because I, like I said, I was trying to convince myself that it was okay because we were married and, you know, how can you, you know, rape your spouse? Like I couldn't wrap wrap my mind around if that was a thing or not. Right. But what had actually cut me off the edge was I found out that he was on adultfriendfinder.com talking to these women and trying to meet up with other women. And that was what actually did it for me. I was like, I've done everything for you, especially stuff that I didn't want to do. And now you're still going and looking for other women, you know, fuck you. I'm out of here. So I I had left and I I didn't even come back. I, I had a really rough time after that. I didn't even come back to pick up my daughter for about three weeks because I, I just, couldn't and then I did start getting her and I'd have her very minimally because I was living with a friend and I had had an old beaten up truck and why what you said you couldn't see her why couldn't you were you high well I yeah basically I would well I was really really drunk I hadn't started the heavy stuff quite yet I just was just getting drunk and I did I didn't want anything to do with it at all you know I just felt like I just made a huge mess of my life by being young and dumb and getting married as young as I did and, and all that stuff. And I, I don't regret my daughter by any means, but at that point it was just confusing for me, you know? So. When did you start using the heavy stuff? Um, the heavy stuff, well, it started out as um, Adderall and Oxy- Oxycontin was what I, I was using, sniffing, sniffing those and, then I started actually. Uh, How did you first noodles. get your hands on them? Were, were you prescribed them the first time around? How did you get your hands on them? 
Uh, let's see. So the Adderall, my friend had the Adderall and was just like, and actually it was Ritalin first. And then it was, it was Adderall second after that. And it was just friends that had had them. And then I ended up dating a girl that was a, a meth addict. And I honestly have no idea why I, cause I wasn't, I wasn't super far into it at that point. She was years heavy into it, but I was living with her and, you know, all of her friends using needles. And I, that's when I was started shooting up Adderall and Oxycontin. You shot I never, Adderall? Mm-hmm. I didn't know you were able to shoot that up. It's very tricky because it coagulates really fast. And if you don't do it really quickly, it just gets stuck in the needle. But if you're determined enough, <laughs> you can uh-huh. make it work. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. Yep, yep. For sure. Yeah, so I was shooting those up and it actually got to the point with the the needles themselves was like a separate addiction for me. So like if I didn't have any, I well, I guess I should start off with how I got the needles. I had wanted a needle to actually get for my my girlfriend at the time. She was sharing needles with people. I'm like, yeah, that's not okay. Let's go get you some needles. So I just went to the pharmacy with a $20 bill. And I said, my grandma has diabetes. Her blood sugar is super low right now. She's out of needles. She gave me this $20 and told me to come and buy needles. And he's like, well, how many did she want? And I was like, I don't know however much this 20 bucks will buy me. And he gave me a box of like a hundred needles. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> I had no idea that they were that cheap. So I, I left with this box of a hundred needles. I started selling them to the people for like a dollar a piece and whatever. And, but when I didn't have anything, I would just inject water into my arm or draw out blood and be done because the needles themselves were an addiction for me. I heard that. Believe it or not, when I was talking or reading about Kurt Cobain, where he eventually just liked the needle going in his arm. Mm-hmm. So that's that was a separate addiction for me. Yeah, yeah, it was. And and even after I stopped using, there there was a gap from when I was injecting stuff and when I wasn't, and then I started using heroin after that. Luckily, I never used the needles with the heroin because I think if I did, I don't think I'd I'd be in recovery from heroin right now but uh, there was a a big space where I was just drinking alcohol smoking pot and uh but I'd still I'd go to like a doctor's appointment or whatever and I'd he'd go out of the room and swipe a big gay needle out of his drawer and take it home and dry out blood and and do whatever with it whenever I could because yeah it was uh, definitely an addiction all on its own yeah to say a thing I think it's because you the needle um, maybe signals the start of something good. So, yeah. you know what I mean, if that first feeling is usually where it comes in. I mean, I think if you eventually did it too much, it would probably be like using drugs where it wouldn't be as effective. Yeah, I, I believe that. But yeah, just using the needle releases that dopamine in your brain and, you know, and those remembrance chemicals, you know, yeah, remember what used to be in that needle and how awesome you'd feel. And it kind of like placebos yourself yep. into kind of a medial high kind of a thing. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah. So how was your you know, day-to-day life during this time? Did you work? How did you support yourself? What was life like? Uh, so when I had first left my ex-husband, me and my friend that I was living in, we, we'd go and scrap metal. Um, we'd just drive around, find old appliances, construction sites were a great spot to get. Because at one point it was like $250 a ton of steel, 
which when you're working with steel, it really isn't too hard to find a ton. A ton is 2,000 pounds. And we'd, we'd go down, like, if anybody is listening from Utah, from Utah County all the way down to, like, Nephi, Mona, which is, like, a good, uh, I don't know, 30 miles away or whatever with big trailers, go around the farmland, pick up all sorts of metal. And that's really, we made a lot of decent money doing that, honestly. We'd, we'd make $250, $300 a day, you know, between the two of us, so 150 each. First stop would be the liquor store, and then the smoke shop, get cigarettes, and sit at home and get drunk. And and actually, that's that's how I was introduced to the Oxycontin. The guy that I was living with, and he, he's dead now. He, he died in his addiction a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But he had a friend, and he was just always, he was a fiender drug addict it was always broke as hell he lived with his parents never had any money to really do anything but anytime he had the chance he'd take whatever he could get so he had a friend that had cancer that was on oxycontin um that would shoot up the oxycontin and he, what he would do is he would save his cotton pieces for him and then we'd take the cotton pieces and get whatever we could out of it and that that's how i actually discovered oxycontin and i love oxycontin i mean i've done uppers i've done downers but the oxycontin for me was my, my devil's lettuce for sure. Yeah. I love the oxys. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually why I went to heroin because heroin's a lot cheaper than Oxycontin. <laughs> Thank God that was on my list of things I promised I'd never do. And I was able to stick to that. I, cause I yeah. would have been done. I have a very, very addictive personality. I like to do a lot of stuff. Um, and I'm an idiot and I mixed stuff so i might be able to mix the wrong thing you know many times i went to bed wondering if i was gonna wake up mm-hmm. yeah. i know that feeling yeah was, yeah for me i mean nervous. i never really <clears throat> yeah i never really had a thing that i said i would never do up until i started actually using heroin and then i was like i cannot use needles with heroin period i cannot because i will never be able to stop that's where my my line was drawn <laughs> did you stick to that oh yeah yeah i never used needles with my heroin just i'd use it with the adderall and the oxycontin and then this needles on their own but like i said i stopped using needles let's see time frame here so 2013 is when i met my wife um we got married in 2019 so between like 2013 and well, maybe it's only a year. It wasn't as long as I thought it was because <laughs> I, I had stopped, stopped shooting up Oxycontin just before I had met her. And, and then I, I discovered heroin around 2014, like maybe halfway through 2014, I discovered the heroin. And I, I just kind of fumbled into that because I was hanging out with stupid people still. And they're like, oh, hey, that's heroin. Sure, why not? <laughs> you know, and, you know, and you asked before how I supported my, I did the, the scrapping. And then I did have a couple jobs. Um, worked at one call center place for like a year. Um, I actually got fired from a job because I was smoking heroin in the parking lot and they caught me. Um, another one, I was, I had brought a big old water bottle <laughs> to work full of full. Uh, and I was just drinking it all day long. And I, I had this manager guy that was just, he was being very sexually harassive towards all the women and nobody was saying anything. And so I just got to one day, I was just drunk enough 
<laughs> that I just stood up and told them to fuck off. And, you know, look at all these women, women stand up and say something. And they actually were backing me up on it. But yeah, they fired me, of course, because I was, I was drunk, mumbling, yelling at the supervisor. But <laughs> hopefully he got fired too, or at least reprimanded or something, because people were starting to be like, okay, we need to do something about this dude. He was just a prick. But, yeah, on and off, working. Uh, my, my best friend that we're still best friends um, knew that I was I was drunk and drinking there. She also knew that I was smoking heroin. She kicked my ass every time she found out that I was using. Yeah. Those yeah. are the good friends. Those are the ones that care. The pains yeah. in the asses. Yeah. Yeah, I also got fired from a gas station that I worked at because I was stealing beer out of the beer cooler and just putting it in my in my 32 ounce mug or whatever huh. all next thing i know the cops are showing up <laughs> over breathalyzing me yep over beer and I, I paid for it so i didn't get a ticket or, or anything and they're like well you can't drive your car so i just went across the street and called my buddy that had just gone through um the drive-thru at the gas station and i sold him some xanax through the drive-thru window i was doing all sorts of weird stuff over there but i called him and told him hey walk over there and grab my car and and come back and, and so I can drive it away. So they went and got it. And then I get a call from the cops like, we know what you did. We're not stupid. <laughs> you know, if we see you, we're going to arrest you. So I was like, well, shit. So I went down to Provo, which is kind of our, it's more or less kind of a drug hub. Um, BYU is also down in Provo. So there's all sorts of contradictions in Utah because BYU, like I said, is Brigham Young University. That's, you know, funded by the church and a lot of stuff like that. But then on the other side of Provo, we have what's called Third South, where all the junky hotel and motels are. There's a place called the Boulders, which is just like an apartment complex that's notorious for drug use and homeless people and, <laughs> and whatever. So when the cops had called me, I shot my butt down to Provo and got some heroin. I think basically what I was thinking is if I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to go to jail high. You know, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to make sure that I have something. But I, I had stopped um, right on the border of Provo and, and Orem is where I was working, where the, I was living also. And I'd stopped there and I called my wife. She wasn't my wife at the time. But I called her and I told her, oh, I went and bought some beer and I, I cracked one open. And the cop told me if I drive away, I'm going to get arrested. So will you come pick me up? <laughs> so she came and picked me up. She knows the whole story now. But yeah, so all sorts of crazy stuff. And then it, it, it really started ending. Me and my wife were getting pretty bad we were both pretty bad into the drinking and obviously I was using heroin on top of that and she she basically knew that I, I was using heroin and one at one point she's like I know you're high right now I'm gonna find your stash and whatever and prove to you that I'm right basically and I just sat there and watched her dig through my shit because I knew that my stuff was in my pocket and she wasn't gonna find it <laughs> so I just sat there and watched her tear all my stuff apart because I knew it was in my pocket and I wasn't gonna get in any trouble so but yeah, it got really bad. We had gotten a couple domestic violent charges, each of us, not for hitting each other, but apparently domestic violence is, even if you're like in an argument with a significant other or something like that, and you punch a wall or yep. you throw your phone or anything that can be considered intimidating, that's a domestic violence charge. Exactly. I've, I've yeah. learned that. Yeah. There needs to be some sort of levels in domestic violence, like domestic violence, one, two, and three, you know, where one is like, you actually hit them, you know, yeah. the, you, somebody looks at your record and sees domestic violence. They just automatically assume you're a wife beater, you know? So exactly. 
Yeah. So we had gotten a couple domestic violence charges for doing stuff like that. And uh, the last time I had just gone to jail, I was super, super wasted, high on, on heroin. I'd gone to jail three or four times before this, but I'd gone to jail and um, Amber, who's my wife, she had just said, yeah, we're done. My mother came and picked me up from jail. This is the second time she had bailed me out. She picked me up from jail and we went to the house and I was in my, my boxers and a wife beater, no bra or anything. <laughs> I, I was in, that's how I was taken to jail. Um, and I get, we get to the house and my stuff is in garbage bags out on the front yard. And she said, we are done. And my mom said, you're going to rehab. So I, I've been to three, I've been to rehab four times. So one time I went, um, for like maybe three weeks and I, I got out and I came back to my wife's house and we started drinking that night, you know, no big deal, whatever. <laughs> the second time I went, I went to a place called Annie's house up in Salt Lake and they, I never met a doctor, never talked to anybody other than the house manager. She had just asked me, you know, what were, have you been doing? I was like, I drink and I use heroin. She was like, how much heroin do you use? I told her. And the next they put me in a special room for detoxing like by myself and they were supposed to check on me every hour and I ended up waking up to these two attendants shoving pills in my mouth saying put them under your tongue let them disintegrate and it was suboxone apparently and I I I don't know hardly anything about suboxone but I've talked to other people that use suboxone regimens to you know detox and get off heroin and whatever they started me off with six pills of Suboxone and then five, four, three, and two, one, they were bringing it down like that. And from the people that I've talked to, they have said that is a ridiculous amount of Suboxone that they were giving you. That is a crazy high amount. But you know, I, in my mind, I was like, cool. I, Cause Suboxone gets you high if you take enough for sure. And I was like, cool, I can be high in rehab, bring it on. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say no. So they, they had, and I, again, I had never met or talked to a doctor or anything like that. By my second day, I woke up in the hospital was the next thing that I knew. I woke up in the hospital with a tube down my throat, breathing for me, just super confused, woke up and saw my, my mom and my brother, and I had no idea what had happened. Apparently what had happened is they, they hadn't been checking on me from the time, the times they were supposed to. I had had a seizure. And I fell off the bed in between the bed and the dresser. And the doctor said that because my kidneys were in failure and so were my liver. Um, and I, I straight up almost died um, because of liver failure, kidney failure. And they had said that I had to have been in just such an odd, awkward, squished position for such a long amount of time that my kidneys failed. So they, the doctor said that I had to have been laying there for six hours at least. And they were supposed to check on me every hour. And I thought that the, the seizure was due to like alcohol withdrawals. It was not. I had an overdose of Suboxone. No shit. Yeah. The rehab facility overdosed me on Suboxone. I had to be life flighted to the hospital, which is, so my, my dad is a life flight pilot. And so his company um, is actually the people that picked me up. Um, he didn't fly it because obviously they probably wouldn't allow him to do that. But his his crew members flew me. And uh, after that, we had gone to a, a Christmas party at his uh, crew house because they have like houses they live in while they're on duty. And they all looked at me and they're like, you look so much better than the last time we saw you. We had to clean out the helicopter with a hose. I was like, don't tell me that. 
<laughs> That's mm -hmm. disgusting. <laughs> but yeah, so they overdosed me on Suboxone and then I, I got picked up by a different rehab facility called the Phoenix. And I actually spent about 90 days there. Um, did Was tons this a and tons one? of therapy. Oh yeah, way, way better. Um, anytime anyone around here asks for, you know, referrals for a rehab, I always send them to the Phoenix because uh, they're they're just awesome, awesome people. Their, their program is amazing. They don't do any kind of like medical detox or anything there. You have to do it somewhere else. Um, you know, probably for the liability issue that Annie's house did to me. <laughs> you know, they don't want anything like that going on there. But just their their therapist, the, their program. I had like three different therapists that did different, you know, aspects. Like I had one therapist that pretty much did the steps and the step work with me. And then I had another one that did um, EMDR therapy, um, which if you don't know what EMDR therapy is, it's really cool. And it, it helped me a lot with my trauma. It's, it's basically targeted at, at trauma. Um, so I had someone who did EMDR therapy with me and then somebody that just did regular, you know, talk therapy with me. And we'd go to meetings and, you know, all that stuff. It was a female only house. And then they had a male only house also. But I spent 90 days there. And the, the interesting thing with that is, is there was three people that had come in uh, as residents to the rehab that I actually knew from the past. <laughs> uh, this one chick, we, we had no idea how we knew each other. We were trying to pin it for like a month. And then finally, she was telling a story about she was selling pills and her stepdad had come to the door and banging on the door. And the person that she was selling them to almost stabbed him. And I was like, that was me. <laughs> Uh, I almost stabbed your stepdad. <laughs> so, and we're still friends, friends now. And she's still sober. She's still doing great. Out of the 10 girls that I was there with, eight of them, or seven, seven or eight, are still sober. And we're all still friends on Facebook and, and everybody's still doing great. And that was six years ago almost. So it was a, a really good program. But when I got out, they put me in a sober living. And I just, I don't, I was doing really well. And I don't know what you know, a hair, crazy hair went up my butt or whatever, but I decided, Hey, I'm going to try and drink. Let's, let's see what, what happens with this. And I went and I got a fifth and I drank the entire thing and I vomited all over the bathroom and woke up in the morning with a breathalyzer in my face. <laughs> oh boy. <clears throat> yeah. So, but I, I called the rehab, I called the Phoenix right back. And I was like, I'm afraid that if I do not get back in right now, I'm going to go find some heroin. And they're like, okay, yeah, come back in. So I came back in, I was there for maybe about three weeks. Um, and then I, I graduated again and went out and I've never touched heroin since. So been in recovery since then. That's a great story. My last question for you is, do you have any advice for people that are listening and watching? Um, my advice for for people listening and is to understand that everybody's recovery and sobriety journey looks different some people use methadone to help with their meth craving some people use suboxone some people use cbd some people use you know whatever that, that is not their vice you know and, and things like suboxone and methadone those things can be dangerous and they can be addicting on their own but if you take them based on the doctor's orders and you're responsible with them that way and they're not ruining your life they're not causing you to steal more or lie or cheat and you're able to hold the job and keep your house and be happy 
you know, do what you have to do and don't let people tell you that you're not in recovery because your recovery looks different than their recovery. I actually have a, a Facebook group called Our Recovery Our Way, specifically for people in that kind of a situation that, you know, maybe they were addicted to Xanax or whatever. So now they smoke marijuana to help with their anxiety and whatever. And they don't have the issue with marijuana that they had with the Xanax. So they call themselves in recovery and other recovery groups on, on Facebook. I've seen a lot of really harsh things said to, to people that are doing stuff like that. So my Facebook group is kind of more of a safe place for people doing stuff like that. But, you know, don't let, if you feel like you're in recovery, unless you're just straight up lying to yourself and you got to honestly be able to ask yourself that question. But if you're in, in recovery based on what you feel and you're happy in yourself, don't let anybody else bring you down. And just because your recovery looks different than theirs. That's probably the best advice that I could give. And that's great. You said everyone uses different things. Cannabis, Suboxone, medicinal marijuana. It could be a number of things. As long as it works, mm -hmm. that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, because I mean, some people, uh, if a doctor prescribes Xanax and you don't overtake it or abuse it, are you technically still an active addiction? I would say no. Exactly. As long as you're taking it as prescribed, then it doesn't matter. Doctor's telling you mm -hmm. to. Because nobody, unless it's another doctor giving his opinion, who is anyone to say anything? You're not a doctor. So that's, that's yeah. kind of how I end that conversation real quick. If anyone brings that up is you're not a doctor. I'm going to believe my doctor. Yeah. They went to school, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, just, you know, everybody stay safe. And, you know, if you're, you're struggling, there's all sorts of resources. You know, there's AA meetings probably in your area. If not, they're on Zoom or whatever. Tons of Facebook groups and stuff that you can ask for help in. And just don't be afraid to ask for help, you know, because everybody that you're asking has either been there or is currently there. And this is, we're family, you know, we're, we're not going to judge you or shun you you know, ask for help, there will at least be one person that's willing to give you a call or take you to coffee or whatever. So just don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah. All right. So forever, for, for everyone listening and watching, if you like what you saw, go below and click subscribe. Also, give us a like. You can also go to our Facebook group as well and join that under our events tab. Um, Courtney was mentioning having Zoom meetings, which we actually host. If you go to uh, Zoom ID is number 968-004-9132, and the password is Compassion, we do those meetings every night at 6.30 Eastern time. So that's all I have for today, and until next time.